Hi, this is Matthew Godfrey of You Can't Do That on Television, and you are listening to Reliving My Youth with Noel Fogelman. And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. One of my favorite shows growing up was You Can't Do That on Television. It first aired back in Canada in 1979, before getting picked up by Nickelodeon in 1981. The show was an alternative to those educational kid shows, and it featured adults not in the best light. It was also where Nickelodeon's famous green slime you still see today originated from. My guest today is Matthew Goffrey, who was a cast member back in the 1986-87 season. His character was kind of like the know-it-all type kid, and he tells me which famous sitcom star his character was modeled after. We discuss the audition process for the show, some of his favorite sketches, and working with Alanis Morissette. He also shares some of the secrets of the show, including how they filmed those famous slime scenes. Matthew has a fascinating background, son of Canadian diplomats, he tells me his real-life connection to the movie Argo. Here's my conversation with Matthew. And helping me relive my youth today is Matthew Godfrey. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, a pretty interesting background. Uh, son of Canadian dip- diplomats, so you've pretty much moved all around the world, huh? And uh, then when I was months old, we moved to Iran and um, lived there for a good three years before going to Peru. Um, and then uh, another three years, started school there and <clears throat> moved back to Canada. And then at that point, I mean, we were still technically on posting um, after three years in Canada, but I went to Texas, Dallas, Texas. Um, so that was a post, although, you know, not as exotic as some of the other places, but it was fascinating in the sense that, you know, I started acting there at the Dallas Theater Center. That's some fantastic, um, like, uh, the great six drama teachers, I recall, in particular, who really uh, got me interested in starting doing professional theater, and it was there that I um, saw You Handed on Television for the first time, because it was the big show on in the States, and I was the right age on the graph, and... Um, um, and I thought my acting life was going to be over leaving Dallas, um, and then I found out that You Can't Run Television was filmed in Ottawa. I remember jokingly saying, oh, I'll be on that one day. And um, when we moved back to Ottawa, I was handed an audition notice that was in the newspaper by my grade 9 drama teacher. I was at an art school, and I went and auditioned, and my brother and I booked the gig um, within, you know, not too long of moving back to Canada, so... That was kind of cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a great break. But I just want to go back uh, a little bit. Uh, how old were you when you were living in Iran? Iran, I was six months to three and a half. Oh, okay. So, pre, pre-revolution. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. That's, that's what I was wondering, yeah. Did I, your parents get out before then? Yeah, we got out um, 75. So we got out four years before the revolution happened. I mean, there was stuff going on. You know, there was, um, uh, you know, the, the Shah was in power, and there was all the issues about the U.S. propping up the Shah, and, uh, um, and, and 
you know, it was a very different culture. Of course, you know, I was very sheltered from that. But, um, you know, there still were public executions down in the square um, and, or, you know, main parts of Tehran. Um, and funnily enough, the first house that we lived in, um, I think the house that we were supposed to live in was being renovated or something like that. Um, and so we spent the first four or five months in a house that eventually would be used to hide the American hostages. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, they, they lived there for months and months and months later on um, in 1979, 1980, which, of course, is the subject of the film Argo. Exactly. The Canadians played a huge role in that. Um, so, yeah, that was, uh, um, I guess, one of my first houses. Um, and I have a couple of flash memories of uh, living in Iran. Um, I was around a bunch of Persians uh, a couple of years back, and they were, you know, I was listening to Persian all the time, and suddenly, you know, memories were coming back because somewhere deep in my psyche, there's memories in Farsi, which is the language that uh, I started to speak as a, uh, as a boy. old year old, year and a half year old, you know. So yeah, that was uh, that was Iran. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, have you? Yeah, have you been back since? I have not been back to Iran um, since. Closest I got was just two weeks ago. I was in uh, Dubai, um, so that was pretty close. Um, I flew over Iran. Actually, the flight path is kind of interesting. Went right down the Persian Gulf, right in between. Um, you know, between all the different countries, as close to the borders as you could get. Right. Um, so that was kind of cool. Uh, but no, never been back to Iran since then. However, just Last week, the week after I was in Dubai, I did a job in Lima. I just got back last Tuesday, and that was my first time back in Lima since I left there in 78. Yes. So almost 40 years. Um, and that was really, really kind of amazing to go back to Lima. I mean, looking around, I, you know, suddenly the landscape became like fiercely familiar to me. Um, you know, because I was looking at that landscape, at that sort of city view, what you can see when you're walking, walking around the hills and all that, where I'm the ages of three and a half to six and a half. Um, so clearly there was some memories in there. So that was very cool. Right. And that's pretty neat. And now you're based out of L.A., correct? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm based out of Los Angeles. All right. Um, and I've been here for many, many years. I moved here intentionally wanting to stay for six months. Um, and well, gave myself a six-month window that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, if things weren't going properly, then I would move back to Toronto. But after six months, I had a good agent and was going out for stuff and um, decided to stay, and that was uh, 17 years ago. Right. Now, on the, um, the uh, you can't do that on television uh, audition process, was slime, water involved at all? <laughs> you had to walk under, you know, and 
if you were if you're over that bar unless they saw some you know glint of magic in your eye i guess they uh, you couldn't go past that and uh there was cold reading there was interviews there was on camera and um by the end of the night or i guess the next day uh or at least a couple days later they whittled it down to like 14 15 people that made it through and um yeah there was no pie or water or slime during the audition process right and so pretty much if you fit in a locker that you moved on right <laughs> <laughs> yes you had to do sort of that it was strange being on the show because there really was this this sort of weird age they wanted you to be at you know um you couldn't be too much of a kid. Um, you, you know, you needed to work professionally and uh, and handle the sketch humor and um, and you know work in that way. But at the same time, you couldn't get too old um, on that show. And I think subconsciously, a lot of us kept ourselves rather young for <laughs> as long as possible. Right. On that. Yeah. Yeah, and what I remember, for, like mostly from that show, was just the diverse, you know, cast that they had, you know, among the kids. I'm, I'm sure that was clearly intentional. The first cast of kids? Yeah, I mean, just the, 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 how diverse the cast was, you know, yeah. different races and gen- it was just, you know, I'm sure that was clearly intentional. Yeah, I would, I would definitely, they were very intentional in their casting. I, I, know, um, I know I'm not as familiar with the earlier cast um, that went through. I mean, you know, I've talked with Christine and Kevin and Lisa, you know, subsequently over the years. Um, but really, I was—I did one episode with Christine Moose. Um, I knew Kevin Kubitschewski because he was around the set a lot, but I never worked with Lisa on set. Um, but uh, yeah, they did have a, a you know a broad group of of youth, and that might be reflective of you know Canadian culture, um, uh, of our marketing move. Um, you know, because originally it did start as an independent show in Ottawa this before Nickelodeon got right. hold of it. Um, but I do know that one of the reasons I was brought on the show, and this sort of speaks to, you know, they were very intentional in their thinking, at least the way it was explained to me, um, the big, big show at that time was Family Ties. Yes. And, um, they, you know, we had Michael J. Fox, know-it-all character, and you can't tell on television felt that they needed a, um, uh, a similar parallel-type character. Um, to compete in that, and I happened to look fairly similar to Michael J. Fox, um, uh, especially at that age. Uh, you know, you can sort of vaguely stretch it. Um, and on top of that, because I just finished living in Texas, I had an American accent. Both my brother and I had, you know, Southern Texan accents. So that really helped. It sort of broke us out of the um, Ottawa, you know, local sound. Um, and I got booked as the know-it-all because um, during the audition, I remember sitting in the main hallway, I was reading um, Peter Schaffer's uh, script, Amadeus, uh, you know, which they turned into the movie, right. uh, Amadeus. Um, and that, I loved that movie. When a I great movie, yeah. Out, yeah. And, um, you know, I was at theater school, well, at, I was at an art school, and that was the script I was reading. So that really stood out in the producer's mind. Um, when they saw this, you know, 13-year-old or 14-year-old reading Peter Schaffer's Amadeus in the hallway. All the other kids were, I don't know, doing something, chit-chatting yeah. before cell phones and all that. And they started to ask me about that. And um, I started to, you know, talk about that and other things. And they started to go, oh, and he kind of looks like 
Michael J. Fox, and um, then I got, you know, dinged as the know-it-all um, pretty quick on that. So that was neat. So obviously I think they did, you know, they were casting with mindfulness to marketability, um, uh, whether it was just kismet on their part um, throughout the process. But I know that in my case they did bring me in specifically-ish for that, you know? Right. Now what was... um like one of your favorite like sketches to do i mean you know they had obviously the firing squad the lockers you know bark burger but what was one that you really enjoyed doing um you know i was only put in front of the firing squad like a couple of times i always wanted to do the dungeon and they never put me in the dungeon right (laughs) i think i really liked the front door that was always a fun set to work on okay because um, I, don't, I don't know whether it was uh, just because of the staging of it. I seem to remember having fun doing that. Um, the uh, bedroom sketches were always a lot of fun. Um, I remember this one time, Doug and I did this whole sketch with an air conditioner going blasting on, and the two of us um, just did this whole physical, you know, tearing the room apart, being blown across the room, and the mattress was going everywhere, and the producer was in hysterics, and the crew, and they shot it, and they, everyone loved it, and it never made it onto an episode. Oh. <laughs> I have no idea where it is, but everyone loved it. Maybe there was a technical issue, but, you know, Doug and I just improvised the thing out, and um, everyone was in hysterics on it, so that was a lot of fun. Um, Barth's Burger was always a bit sickening to work on. <laughs> Right. I mean, it really was. They they did their best to, you know. I remember they brought in McDonald's one time, and like at that point, we were like, "Oh my God, how much McDonald's can I eat?" And then they would put cookies in the hamburgers, but then at a certain point, like, "I I can't eat another cookie." Um, you know, uh, Dean, the props guy, he would come in with hamburgers he'd cooked himself, and, um, and they always put really revolting things in that bucket that we would vomit into. Right. And I. I remember going over it, and it, you know, the audience never saw it, the camera never shot in there, but when you stuck your head in it, I think that was their little inside joke on us. <laughs> um, and then when the bathroom sketch, uh, when they built that set, we had a lot of fun on that one. Um, I think it was just because it was such a small, compact little set, and you know, when you're given a very confined space to work and you start to come up with some sometimes more interesting stuff, so that was cool. Yeah, and I don't know, just uh, the parents, I mean, could there be two of, like, less competent parents than those two? <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they were they were fantastic with that. Um, and Les and Abby were just, uh, were wonderful to work with. I think Les, to me, um, you know, played all the adult male roles. Right. Um, I'd, I'd already been acting um, on stage. For a couple of years before I got on Weekend on television, and to me, I really loved all the um, artistry of you know disguising yourself and creating characters. And so to work with Les, who you know his dressing room was just full of fake noses and fake mustaches, <laughs> and and it was just so uh, magical stepping into another time. And um, I think I only ever saw his dressing room once, but I heard about it. He'd always come out and. He would just play that character all day, and he was just great to work with. And uh, Abby, of course, just hysterical. Um, yeah. You know, they were really, really, really well matched. And you're right, absolutely hideous parents. Um. Yeah, it, it just like just looking at those skits now. It's I, I know there's talk about reviving the show, but I would imagine they would have to kind of come up with their own 
type of skits. They're not going to put kids in front of a firing squad anymore now. Uh, nope. You know, and you know the parents, you know, as well. You know, I'm sure now they're going to have healthy food instead of being barf bur- you know, barf burgers. So it's, it's. I'm sure they're going to have to change up the show. And unfortunately, I don't know if it would have the same effect as you know yours did. Yeah, there was a certain irreverence that you could get away with, and um, uh, yeah, I, I honestly I don't know what you could. I mean, we get away with a lot of it now in cartoons. Right. Um, you know, you look at The Simpsons, yeah. and um, you know, The Simpsons were. You know, the story goes that. Um, when The Simpsons was starting off, um, they actually slightly modeled both Homer and Marge after the mom and dad. Hmm. Um, and, and if you look at it, they're very, very similar. Right. Um, and uh, I think you can get away a lot more with, you know, obviously stuff on The Simpsons and Family Guy and and, and shows like that. Um, but to your point, it might, it would be difficult. It would be certainly a different... Um, Take. I mean, what kids are dealing with now is obviously a lot of similarities, but there's such different um, cultural influences and, you know, the influence of technology and exposure to mass media that, you know, I think back in the 70s when the show started and when I was working on it in the 80s, you know, you were still relatively innocent of that and children were just dealing with how to deal with authority figures. And one of the huge successes of You Can't Do That on television um, from a sort of psychological level was that it always put the authority figures, i.e., you know, the teachers, the parents, um, and things like that, into a comedic light, into a sort of um, ridiculous level. Um, and the kids always won. Um, and that I think was a huge appeal to it because the kids not only you know the audience is not laughing at the jokes but they're also on some level responding to the fact of yeah my teacher is insane right. and doesn't like me and what did our teacher look like he looked like Hitler <laughs> you know he had the little mustache and he was always like being ridiculously unfair and the kids always won out and you know Ross the studio uh, floor director you know sort of working us so much, but um, and being unreasonable, and uh, the doctors, and um, yeah, so all of those authority figures being put into a very irreverent light. Um, and now I wonder if that would be the secret to it, because I often look at stuff that's playing on Nickelodeon now or other children's stations, and you really see that the parents are almost non-existent. Yeah, and then if because I have I have two kids that watch it all the time, and like it. If they're around, they're completely incompetent, or you know, exactly. wacky yeah. or zany. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are that, and um, I think that the child needs to psychologically win out um, on it. So it would be, it'd be very interesting. I've I've heard a couple of ideas go back and forth um, on uh, revivals of it, um, and it would be neat to you know. I would hope it would stay in that sort of sketch variety concept. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, and if that does happen, it would be nice to kind of show my kids that show and hopefully it would bring to light your show because it's not really available anywhere to watch on DVD or on demand at all, which is really unfortunate. No, it isn't. And 
And I know that there's a, a lot of groups that are trying to get it on, and every now and then you hear a you know a little story comes out saying, oh, they're going to release this. And I know a couple of years ago, Nickelodeon actually ran like the uh, first season or something, like late at night. Um, and I don't know the reason for not bringing it back because um, I'm constantly running into people um, who look at me and go, how do I know you? Right. And I sort of eventually bring up, I said, um, if we're the same age, did you watch You Can't Put That on Television? They go, oh, my God. You know, so I'm talking to people in their 40s and 50s who recognize me from that. Um, and you would think they would bring it back. I don't know the exact reason. I don't know whether it's tied up in, you know, legal things or uh, I don't know if they'd owe everybody heaps of money. Right. I don't know who owns it. You know? Yeah. There's been a lot of theories floated out there. No, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when you were there, did you work with Alanis Morissette? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How, yeah. Um, I think I did most shows of hers with her. We did, uh, what was it, Enemies and Paranoia. Um, I remember that. That was a, that was a really fun one. Um, that was with the Russian invasion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I can't remember if she was in contests or not. She might have been. Um, but anyway, yeah, I got along great with her. I remember uh, I, I went skiing with her on one or two occasions. Um, and she was just incredibly, incredibly driven. Um, and while we were working with her at that point, I mean, she dropped her first or second single on vinyl. Mm. Um, and I had a copy of that for ages. I don't know where I went. Right. I sometimes. But, uh, yeah, worked with Lana. She was uh, lovely to work with. Actually, we did a spinoff. Um, it was a couple of years after, maybe a year after we stopped working on the show. It was something called Kids Line that um, was like an informational show. I think it did one or two episodes. And Alanis and I were hired to be the anchors of that. And I remember sitting with her at the anchor desk at CGOH News and reading teleprompters and going out to the field and interviewing people. We only ever did one episode of it, but um, yeah, she was a lot of fun to work with. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, it's a big fan of her music as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now, yeah, as, as you moved on from You Can't Do tel- Television, how did you uh, discover the Red Nose Clown? Um, <laughs> red Nose Clown. Um, yeah, very interesting. Um, to me, in hindsight, like in super, super hindsight, when you sort of look at your entire life on stuff, I realized that when I lived in Peru, I was into clowning then. Um, I remember putting on a show and rehearsing it, and it was just full of sketches and pratfalls. And although we didn't have the clown nose, um, like we made a program, charged admission. Um, I think it was just my parents, my friend's parents, and my grade one teacher, but you know. Um, but then ultimately when I got to Clown, um, I was at uh, National Theatre School of Canada, which is where I went to theatre school and, in Montreal. And the Clown is part of the progression of actor training from doing mask work and character work. And when you get to the red nose Clown bit, you're really sort of stripping it down to just you um, and understanding a certain vulnerability of the performer. Um, so yeah, that's all the theory of it. And um, then a number of years after theater school, um, you know, I did some clown stuff in Toronto, 
Um, you know, we're a show like Measure for Measure by Shakespeare. We did a production in Buffon, uh, Grotesque Clown, um, um, and did another production of Romeo and Juliet and Red Nose Clown. Um, but I'm trying to w- figure out where the order of that came in. I started working for this group called the International Schools of Theater Association, which is an association of international schools around the world, and they hold theater festivals whereby schools in that region or that hemisphere or actually anywhere in the world are invited to go to it. So, you know, you'll get some kids from, like, Hamburg, Germany, which is where the first festival I did uh, was at, and kids will fly in from uh, from Norway, from England, from somewhere in Asia, um, and they will all get together there, and we do a festival for three or four days, and um, it's about learning ensemble work and devising work. Anyway, long story short, I had to offer some workshops, you know, uh, besides doing all the ensemble work with the students, um, and uh, I was asked to, you know, you know, provide a workshop, so I thought, okay, I'll do Shakespeare, and they said, uh, yeah, we had, so many people do Shakespeare, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll do stage combat, and they go, every male on our roster does stage combat, okay, fine. Um, so I was really racking my brain, like, what could I do that's different? And I remember thinking, oh, Red Nose Clown. Huh. Well, if I use it for this, and, you know, although I've not practiced it a heck of a lot, um, I have my notes. So I quickly put together a workshop on it, and they said, great, well, you know, nobody's doing this. And um, I launched myself into it uh, as a teacher and realized I loved it. And it was uh, really nobody was doing it. And over the years, I've just developed it and developed it and um, then started performing more of it. Um, and right now, I've been running for a year with a show um, called Was ist das, um, which is a cabaret show set in 1924 Berlin in the Weimar Republic. Um, and it's a variety show. We have different acts that come in. But I, I, I'm Norbert Yetzo, which is my, one of my clown characters, and I'm the head butler at this household. Um, and uh, you know, it's in a theater. It's uh, in cabaret venues, but we, you know, pretend that it's our nice, gracious living room in 1924 Berlin. And so, yeah, that's how the clown came about. And subsequently, I've been teaching it around the world for 20 years now, or seven, yeah, about almost 20 years. Wait. Wow. Man. <laughs> yeah. And I like imagine the red nosed clown is pretty much universal, no matter where you go. Um, yeah, it is. The great thing with clown is that you um, you can use language, but more often than not, you're using gibberish, and you are responding on an emotional level, and I think, and uh, a connecting level. I mean, that's the thing with clown. You're breaking through that wall. Uh, you're not playing with that fourth wall um, where you ignore the audience. Um, you're connecting with them, and the audience sees themselves in the clown. Um, and uh, and it, it works. It, it, the type of clown I do isn't necessarily like circus clown, though. Um, and uh, it's more of, I mean, there's elements of circus clown into it, but I don't wear floppy shoes. I don't wear right. a big wig or have big trousers or have, you know, all those sorts of things. Yeah. That's a style of clown unto itself. And I, I generally explain it to my students so they can sort of get their head away from the circus clown and the scary clown. I, <clears throat> I tend to describe it as more of a Cirque du Soleil type clown. And they go, oh, you know, it's right. a bit more about relating to the audience as opposed to 
doing funny gags and pratfalls. Those things can happen, but the clown at the core is about connecting um, on a much more um, stripped down of facades and uh, social constructs, connecting on an emotional level. So it does work very, very well all around the world. Um, I did a festival in Indonesia on this island called Tolunas, mm. and uh, we had students from all over Southeast Asia <coughs> at that festival, and we did a performance um, one night around a bonfire, um, and all the local Indonesians that uh, either worked at the place we were staying or were in nearby villages and things like that, um, they, uh, they were in hysterics. They absolutely loved um, you know what was going on, and my guys were speaking in gibberish. <laughs> so I had kids that, you know, probably between all of them would speak 10, 12, 13 languages, didn't use any of those languages, and communicated a show in a completely unstructured gibberish to a group of people that spoke another language. Yeah. And it worked. You know, I can say a lot by not using words. <laughs> right. Yeah. I should write that. Yeah, exactly. That's a great line, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, how can uh, how can fans find you on like social media? Um, social media. Um, I've got a couple things. Um, I've got a website. Um, let me just double check. I'm giving out the correct one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, I've got a Facebook um, for that. And gosh, how do you tell what it is? Um, well, if you look up Matthew Godfrey, it comes up. There's Matthew Red Nose One. That's one of them. Yeah, at Matthew, M A T T H E W R E D N O S E, and the number one. And then, and then of course you can. Uh, um, I'll check. And if I look it up. Terrible. I can't actually remember my website. Right. <laughs> I think it's Matthew A. Godfrey, right? Uh, Matthew A. Godfrey, yeah. Okay. Dot com. <laughs> uh huh. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, That's awesome, Matthew. Uh, last question: After yeah. you after you left, uh, you came to that intelligent, and if you said "I don't know" or a water, did you happen to look up at all? <laughs> <laughs> um, not as much as you would think. I mean, it became it, it, it's very funny how it was all set up. Um, that I don't have you ever heard about how we shot those things? No. No. Okay. Well, the way it would work is um, you know we'd shoot the entire scene. Right, and all the way through, or up until the point that somebody says, I don't know, or water. And then they would cut, and then they would um, get everybody off the sound stage, off the set, and they would cover the set in plastic, and then they would bring the person being slammed to water and the people sitting next to them if they needed to back in. And um, 
there would be somebody standing on a ladder with a bucket over your head, and they would roll it, and um, you'd say the, you know, the Q line, and then the I don't know line. They would dump slime on you. You would respond accordingly. Um, and then we would cut tape um, and then bring everybody back in with the plastic or without the plastic, and then you'd pick up and shoot the rest of the scene. Um, so it was a very much, uh, you know, um, staggered out process. Right. Wow. That's, um, that's and of amazing. course, you know, I, I knew the week before, obviously, when you're reading, um, you know, the script um, as to when that's going to happen. But uh, nothing could prepare me really for the very first episode I ever did, whereby, you know, I got, to, even though I knew it was happening, right. got slimed and watered and three pies in the face. Oh. Um, so that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's it's amazing how the slime has kind of endured, you know, kind of uh, Nickelodeon signature thing over these years. Oh, uh, no, it really is. And I, I've heard various conversations about that. It's because, yeah, that's where the slime came from. Nickelodeon, that's their symbol, that's their logo, and that came directly from you can't do that on television. Yeah, like, you know, my son watched the Kids' Choice Awards and they slime, you know, celebrities now on there and stuff like that, and it's... <laughs> And I wish people would really kind of understand where that came from because you're so was so iconic and so groundbreaking for that network. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. At some point or other, it will. I think I always like it when, um, like, uh, Seth MacFarlane tends to uh, reference the show every now and then right. on Guy and whatnot. Um, and that's always kind of fun when they cut away to something and there's a, that cultural reference. But there really is. I'm very. I'm very proud of, you know, uh, having been a part of that. You know, at the time, obviously, I didn't, you know, it was a, it was a great job to have in high school. Um, but, um, you know, looking back on it, it's, it's pretty cool to go, oh, yeah, I was part of that. Um, and a lot of people watched it and uh, liked it and uh, grew up on it. So I think that's uh, a, a neat thing to have yeah. done. Yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with everything. And a special thanks to Matthew for joining us today. Go to YouTube. You can find clips of You Can't Do That on Television on there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at the first Noel 19 Be sure to like the page Reliving My Youth on Facebook. You can subscribe to the show and listen to past episodes on iTunes. You can rate and review the show there. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Reliving My Youth real soon.